Untold Stories is an annual conference started in 2019 by Startup Europe Networks and Startup Hungary. We believe founder stories are powerful, and we pride ourselves on having real, no BS conversations to inspire and educate our community. Building off of our offline events, we developed this podcast with TechCamp Global to bring you untold stories from some of the best founders in the region year-round. In each episode, we try to uncover the details and hands-on tactics behind the founders' successes so you can benefit from their years of experience and lessons learned. Our hope is you will make fewer mistakes and find new ways to accelerate your growth. My name is Mary Alcantara, and this is the Untold Stories Podcast. Let's dive in. Jared Schreiber is a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. Born and raised in the U.S., Jared relocated to Hungary full-time three years ago and is on his way to becoming Hungary's first super angel. Earlier this summer, he exited from Numerator, a market intelligence company that helps brands and retailers understand consumer behavior, which he grew to a unicorn. So we're excited to hear all about his journey there. We have a ton of topics to cover with Jared. This is a little bit of a different episode for us. He'll be sharing his experience as a startup founder and more recently angel investor, but we'll also be hearing his take on the Hungarian ecosystem. Um, so let's dive right in. Great. Jared, thanks so much for being here with thanks us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So one of the first questions that we ask all our founders is just what got you into this whole entrepreneurial game? So tell us about your journey. Oh, boy. I feel like it started with lemonade stands when I was a kid in the U.S. But so it goes uh, way back for it you. It goes way back. <laughs> it's it's been a it's been a bug in my system since I was little. I uh, grew up going to the flea markets, buying and selling little things. So so I think I always had a little bit of it in me. And uh, I knew after my first career job at a big company, Intel Corporation, back in back in the late '90s, that uh, I didn't want to work for a big company. I wanted to I wanted to create something myself. And so um, I guess Numerator wasn't your first rodeo. Maybe you can tell us about some of your other companies or, that you were part of along the way. Sure. I think the core of my entrepreneurial journey started uh, when, when I finished grad school. I, I really looked for a startup to, to join. And unfortunately, I didn't find the right one and I didn't have the right idea that I felt like pursuing myself. And, uh, but I knew I had some gaps in my own skill set and experience. And so I joined uh, Teradata at the time, which had the world's largest data warehouses and got an opportunity to learn sales, business development, marketing, go to market, all of these areas that I didn't have experience in from, from my Intel days. And from that, I came across a startup that was early in the RFID analytics space. This is back in early 2000s when RFID was gonna take over the world and every product was going to have an RFID tag instead of a barcode on it. And so a startup that had had successful founders who were serial entrepreneurs, uh, had some early funding and early traction, and I joined them as their first outside executive. And uh, that really got me into the entrepreneurial game and moved me out to Silicon Valley, which, of course, is a mecca of the startup ecosystem. What was your role there? What was uh, your responsibility? Yeah, I started off leading services. So we would get data from Walmart, Target, the, the largest retailers in America, and the, and the brands that service them. And, and I led the team that did all of the analytics on that data. And then very quickly was promoted to lead products and services, so so in charge of product management as well, building the analytics products, and then over time also ran uh, business development for the company. So let's talk a little bit about Numerator. Was this the first company that you started? 
Actually, I, st I started one nights and weekends while I was uh, at, at the prior startup, and, uh -huh. and I was trying to create a, a marketplace where a consumer could get any product personalized in any way that, that they wanted, and uh, just realized I wasn't the right person to do that. It wasn't a fit for my skill set, so I actually shut it down before leaving, uh, leaving my job full-time, but, but when I had the idea for, for what became Numerator, that was a really tight fit with what I had been doing with the, with the prior company and uh, felt comfortable to, to go full-time at it and, and build it. So Numerator was originally called InfoScout. That's right. And so, yeah, just tell us what was the origin story there. The origin. So so the prior startup that, that I helped build uh, was called Retail Solutions. And we ended up convincing retailers to share the point-of-sale data uh, with the brands who sold products through them. And we built a whole bunch of analytics that the brands and retailers could use together to optimize the assortment of products they carried, the promotions they ran, the pricing of products, et cetera. And one of the things I realized working with the brands is they had a lot of questions about what was happening at, at retail that they couldn't get answered off of just store item day level point of sale data. They needed a consumer level understanding of what consumers were doing every time they shopped, no matter where they shopped. And this was a gap in the marketplace. And at this time, back in 2011, smartphones were starting to pick up in terms of adoption. Actually, the US was a late adopter. Only a third of households had smartphones back in 2011. But I made a bet that every household is going to have one. And when they do, we can create apps that incentivize consumers to take pictures of their everyday shopping receipts. So no matter where they shopped or what they bought, we would incentivize them to take a picture of their shopping receipt. They would get a reward that they could cash out later, and we would get the data. Uh, and we could anonymize that data and use it for market intelligence for brands and retailers. So kind of like for cross-selling or, okay, this, these kind of customers buy these kind of goods together or sure. all kinds of different sure. use so, cases. Sure. Uh, so, you know, basic use cases, you see promotions in stores all the time. It's actually the brands who fund those, those discounted prices and promotions. And what they want to know is, are they reaching new consumers who weren't already buying the product? Or did they just subsidize the purchases of existing consumers who already buy the product at regular price and now they just loaded up their pantry at a discount? And you can't do that. You can't figure that out with point of sale data. You need to understand consumer level what individual consumers are doing. And we could answer that kind of question. And there are 100 more as well. And this is what you did with InfoScout. That's exactly right. And so you started that company back in 2011. That's right. Okay. You started it, you quit your previous startup, and you went all in. That's right. How many people did you have with you in the beginning? Well, in the beginning, it was just my co-founder, an amazing guy named John Breilig, also a serial entrepreneur. He had worked for me briefly at the prior company, Retail Solutions. Uh, so our paths had crossed. We'd, we'd worked together. And, uh, and he had an exit from a startup that he had founded in between, and, and we joined forces and, and built InfoScout. It was the two of us. Uh, we put in a little bit of savings and, and got to work and uh, started the fundraising path. And we thought, given our, our track records, we'd have no problem with a PowerPoint as a pitch deck, and, and we'd be able to go raise some angel money and get going. And it turned out to be far from the truth in terms of what actually transpired. We, we struggled to raise money in the early days, and we started burning through our own investments and savings. We're going without salaries, of course, and uh, started getting a little desperate there uh, about five months in of, are we going to be able to pull this off and how are we actually going to get some funding? So how did you how did you get past this phase? Well, two things. One is, instead of trying to, to solve all the different problems we thought our approach and technology could solve for the market, we focused on one. And we built our first app and got it to market. And I really credit my co-founder, John, for, for making that happen. That, that was his idea, his focus, and, and drive to make that happen. On the angel fundraising side, 
uh, I got some advice from a serial entrepreneur who, who basically said, Jared, what you need to do is get your first angel, your lead angel, the one that others will follow. Well, what does that person look like? Well, they probably have some experience in your industry or domain, so they have some credibility. And I go, well, how do I get them? Well, he says, look, uh, you offer them the opportunity to be the lead. And if they lead, in addition to, to taking their, their investment and them helping set the terms of the deal, you give them an advisor agreement on the side that, that boosts the equity a little bit. I followed this advice, worked like a charm. We got our first lead angel with them as a, as a credible lead. So many others followed, and immediately we, we were off to the races. And how big was that first angel round? Uh, the first angel round was 450000 And that covered you, that gave you runway for? That gave us runway for about a year. Uh, and we ended up uh, getting term sheets for our Series A by before the end of 2012. Wow. Okay. And how important was it for you to have that, I guess, traction in the early days? So you said oh, you really had. That's you a were, great question. You were actually. not getting a lot of attention because yeah. I think we have this perception here that you know, in America, people just throw money at ideas and everything, but maybe maybe that's more the case now. But maybe 10 a little years bit ago, more now, that's <laughs> it right. might have been a bit trickier. It was a little different. It was a little different. Traction is a word that, that was probably my least favorite word in the English dictionary back then. <laughs> because what would happen is I'd, I'd pitch angels or pitch VCs, and, and the best feedback I would get was, you know, we'd just like to see a little bit more traction. What is traction? We're a B2B2C company. Does that mean we have more consumers using, using our product or platform? To what level or extent? Does it mean we have more clients paying us for the data? To what level or extent? What is traction? Like, what does that mean? And so, you know, fortunately, we figured out it meant we need to be collecting as much data as, as the biggest rival, the incumbent in the market, with a nice growth trajectory behind it that shows we're going to really outperform them. So that turned out to be the traction that we needed. We focused on that. Once we had it, VCs were lined up. We had plenty of term sheets. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a really, I think traction has become this sort of catch-all because you know, for a lot of startups that are pre-revenue, you know, you, you talk about traction. Okay, well, mm -hmm. how many customers, how many eyeballs do you have on your product? What have you done to kind of validate the solution? So that's interesting that you say for you, data became kind of what was convincing in mm -hmm. terms of, yeah, growth and be, being able to grow that. But how were your early sales in those days? Almost non-existent, really. Uh, what we were doing, we had a B2C, B2C business. And so you have a chicken and egg problem. Do you grow the consumer side or, or, or the business side? Because you need the consumer data to make it compelling for somebody to pay for it. Spot on. Yeah. Spot on. So, so that actually dictates which comes first. Exactly what you said. We need the consumer data to get the brands to pay for it. So that means we have to solve the consumer side of the equation first. And the key in B2B2C and, and often marketplace type businesses is you have to figure out how to unlock the chicken and the egg. And the key is actually, how can money unlock one of those sides of the equation for you? And in our case, the angel investment allowed us to do user acquisition and user incentives that got more consumers pr uh, taking pictures of their receipts, providing us the data. Once we started getting meaningful data, not only did VCs have interest because they believed we could monetize it, but brands had interest then in actually buying our services. So you spent that whole first year, basically, and your whole angel round on getting customers to consumers. interact consume, and yeah. consumers mm -hmm. to interact with your app and That's actually right. upload their receipts and That's get right. that data. That's exactly it. And then you got your Series A. That's right. And you were off to the races, as you said, and you were able to start selling. That's basically. exactly right. So from there, we started building the B2B product. 
And we weren't exactly sure what to build at first, actually. So what should it be? Should it be a data product? Should it be a business intelligence platform with a Tableau interface? What should the product be? And so that was a challenge for us in terms of figuring out, and, and who exactly should the customer be? Okay, brands, but brands have thousands of employees. What role specifically should we be focused on uh, that is really underserved that we're best positioned to address their needs? And what did you come up with? So what we came up with is not to go after where the incumbent was generating all of their revenue, even though that, that revenue looked attractive for us to go steal. It turned out there was a role called Shopper Insights that brands had focused on individual retailers at Walmart, at Target, at Walgreens, at Kroger, at all these big U.S. retailers who were focused on how do they improve their sales through that retailer. And it turned out that the incumbents like Nielsen and Kantar didn't have enough data to answer any questions at the retailer level. They could only do it at the total national level. And so this group of people was completely underserved by the incumbent. And so we focused completely on their needs. And by doing so, we didn't have to beat out the incumbent. We could generate new monies and new revenues that didn't exist anywhere before. Hmm. And how did you, I guess, target those shopper insights people? Were they, did you have kind of a, my assumption would be you had a previous customer base maybe from your time at retail solutions? It, or? it helped a lot that I came, came out of the general space, mm -hmm. which was selling insights to brands. Unfortunately, it was a completely different function and budget holder. But because I'd done nice work for those people previously, they were willing to introduce me to their counterparts. That helped get the ball rolling. Hmm. Interesting. And I guess you had this narrative already when you were when VCs were approaching you for your Series A. That's exactly right. right. That's okay. exactly right. So you've seen, you know, I'm sure we could dive, we could go through every year of this whole journey, but uh, we want to talk about other things today too. But I, I want to just kind of go through, because you've seen it all. So you've had, you know, starting from the angel round, sure. Series A, B, C, mm -hmm. and that, you know, being acquired. So yeah, yeah I, I want to, you know, I think you've you've made it <laughs> past a lot of milestones, so we want to just yeah, hear let's about talk, talk about some of those milestones along the way. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Obviously, the angel funding uh, allowed us to get our apps into the market, get the consumer side of the equation solved. Uh, we raised a traditional Series A led by Bain Capital Ventures, and that allowed us to start building our B two B product and start bringing it to market. How big was that round? Uh, that was that was uh, let's see here three and a half million. Okay, so a pretty. So normal modest. for the time. Yeah. 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 Now yeah. that's a seed round. It's pretty well, funny. Exactly. The whole definition yeah, has changed yeah, of what a round is. It's interesting. Uh, yeah. So think of it as a seed round for those of you listening nowadays. <laughs> but back then, that was actually a normal Series A. Um, so we raised that. That allowed us to build the product, get some early traction. At that point, we had uh, interest in a, a Series B round. And we ended up uh, having a strategic investor, so uh, a, a potential competitor in the market on a global scale, take a real interest in us. Uh, they had wanted to do a joint venture, which we turned down, uh, but we gave them the opportunity to lead our Series B. And uh, turned out great, actually. And so, so we took strategic investment, which comes with a, a whole lot of hair mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, that needs navigated carefully. Uh, but it worked out well for us. And then as we continued to grow, we had an option of a Series C. We had, well, wait a sec. Yeah. So the, how big was the B round? It was? Oh, 17, 18 million. Okay. And this was a potential competitor. So Yes, not in the U.S., uh, but uh, as we started looking at expanding internationally, they would be a competitor. So that was really a tough challenge for us. And so, you know, they would make us offers. We'd say no. They'd raise their offers. We'd say no. They'd raise the offers. We'd say no. And then finally it got to the point where, like, we can't say no to this. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, second guessing you probably do at some point in that, in that journey. 
but how was it to so yeah and they wanted to do a jv which you mm-hmm. turned down mm-hmm. so i guess what finally convinced you the terms or the well at some point the terms but but also just you continuously have to look ahead and say what are we trying to build how are we going to get there how does this affect us strategically in terms of what we want to do over the next five to ten years and at some point you you can look at those things and say we can get this to align this will buy us so much runway. This will create credibility for us in the market. This will accomplish these things. And if we can manage these risks of the deal, which our venture partner at Bain Capital Ventures helped us figure out how to manage in the terms, then we could get over the hump and move forward. And ultimately, they were able to, because they now had equity in mm-hmm. you, you they were right. kind of aligned on that side. So they right. kind of helped you That's in the right. story instead of being a, a competitor, competitor later That's on. That's right. That's right. Can you tell us maybe an example of, I don't know, something? Did they bring you to their customers? Or yeah, how? absolutely. So there were a few customers that we had in common, but we were doing different types of work for them. We could go in with a, with a joint pitch and story. They were credible around the world in terms of their approaches and methodologies of the insights that they were bringing clients. And we could piggyback off of that at times uh, in terms of our conversations with clients that we had benefit from this incumbent provider on a global basis. And so there were, there were just a number of areas. I wouldn't say the synergies are what made the deal mm-hmm. make sense at the end of the day, uh, but it also created a strategic threat to the other incumbents that when it came time for a potential exit later, actually increase the value of the company versus decreasing the value of the company. A lot of people get concerned. If you take strategic investment from one company, are you setting yourself up where your only exit potential is that strategic investor? And there's actually a lot of ways to avoid it, and it can actually increase the competitiveness of a final exit. Hmm, That's really interesting. Yeah, because you would expect that you know, your strategic investor would maybe have first right of refusal or something right. to, to be able to and buy. There are clever ways of managing that. I see. Okay. So you had sort of maybe complementary services, mm-hmm. although you were doing something maybe a bit more innovative and something That's that right. a lot of the other competitors were interested That's in. Right. So by establishing your presence and being kind of the leader there, then yeah, you, you're in a great position on the That's market. Exactly it. Exactly. Okay, so this is the B round. So then, yeah. but with the Series C round, then it was a, yet a different type of investment. Series right? C, we were growing like crazy, but we were burning cash like crazy to do it. I mean, it was just a situation where to keep the growth going, we needed to burn cash. And to burn cash, what that meant is we needed to continue to acquire and incentivize more consumers, and we needed to hire more and more salespeople. When you hire salespeople, there's a certain payback period associated with that. They're not selling anything really in the first six months. Right. And then by the time they, they start really selling after, after nine months, if you're on a subscription service, it's not like you get all the cash up front from your client. It starts trickling in o- over time. The long-term value is there, but in the short term, you're burning cash as you're, as you're trying to grow. And so we wanted to keep our foot on the gas pedal. We needed more capital in order to do that. For us, Series C terms from venture capitalists weren't looking great. Hmm. We, we, we weren't excited about it. And so we looked at an alternative, which is venture debt. So instead of selling equity, we took on debt that has, let's call it, higher interest rates and some warrants and other things. And, and it was controversial among our executive team, um, among our existing investors. But at the end of the day, we did the math. And just in almost every scenario of how things could play out, it, it, it looked like it would be better for us. And so we took on uh, $8, 9000000 of venture debt. 
from Trinity Capital, and uh, which just IPO'd this year, by the way, as a mm-hmm. <laughs> as a company themselves, and it turned out to be one of the best moves we we could have possibly made because it was non dilutive in the end. Right. Yeah. I think that's the that's the flip side. Um, mm-hmm. So, can you share kind of the terms of that yeah, deal? Yeah. I, I, I like- mean, the, these terms roughly they come with one to two percent of of various fees to get them going at the started. You've got rates, interest rates of eleven to fifteen percent. Uh, there's some payoff fees at the end, and then they get some warrants on stock in the in the company that can add up to, let's call it one percent as well. And so it's not cheap. Yeah. But if you actually do the math, if you say if we keep growing with this cash, your equity will only increase, increase. And if you keep that, and what it means to your to yourself and your existing shareholders means they're keeping a much bigger chunk of of the upside as a result, and that's what happened. But you have to have rock-solid confidence in what you're doing. You better believe (laughs) that you're going to keep growing at that point. Yeah, and that's that's really interesting um, what you were talking about with the sales cycle being long, Mm -hmm. basically, Mm -hmm. because it's a B2B solution. So you're saying kind of six to nine months to onboard a new customer Mm -hmm. and you know, the subscription fees, mm-hmm. yeah, start yeah. trickling in. That's and right. That's so right. I guess you probably knew at that point that your churn was low enough that you could be confident. Yeah, in we the had process. negative churn. So our, our net revenue retention was 130% year over year. Wow. So if we could land a client, we could expand them and scale them. And we also knew we had a sales motion that worked, that if we hired a sales executive, gave them 12 brands to call on, we knew when we would close the first one and the next one and the next one, and we knew what kind of value that they would bring in. And so we had a repeatable go-to-market and sales process that we knew we could scale. What year was this? Oh, I would say that was really happening by around 2015, 16. That started to really uh, scale. I think the Series B was 2014, uh, just as we were starting to get our first real enterprise sales contracts in and before we'd really even delivered on them. But then by the time we're talking about the venture debt, uh, we were 2016 at that point. Hmm. Yeah, it's super interesting because I think, you know, having that understanding of your customer base and your metrics. So knowing that the acquisition exactly right. you know, costs would, exactly would right. not be more than your lifetime value and having that confidence to invest there. And having high net revenue and gross revenue retention was key. So you already had that, these kind of numbers to back up your strategy and VCs still weren't, VCs, it was still too risky for them. A lot of them. VCs didn't like our business for about three different reasons. One was we found a way to what we thought was shorten the sales cycle by doing initial project work for clients that wasn't subscription. Mm. And VCs often have an aversion to that. They're scared of that. They're scared of that. And the only VCs who had an interest were the ones that we could convince that actually by selling a project, we're getting a customer to pay us to sell into them further on a profitable basis. It's a paid audition. Yeah. Exactly. We can prove our ROI to them and get paid for it. It's actually a great business model. And it truly is, but but a lot of VCs just have a visceral reaction to any kind of project-based revenue. The other, it's not scalable. The other one is <laughs> is in some ways we had the economics of a DAS business instead of a SaaS business. So data as a service as opposed to software as a service. Data as a service businesses to build a data set at scale that customers are willing to pay for. You're spending a lot of money early on as you try to start monetizing it and selling that same data a hundred times over. But if you're only selling it twenty times over your gross margins don't look very good. If you sell it 100 times over, your gross margins look better than a SaaS company. Right. We weren't there yet. We were showing the growth and the traction, but you know, if, if our cost of goods sold are, are 40, 45% instead of 30%, it means we've got 50, 50, 
5% gross margins instead of 70%, which is the target for a SaaS company. So we just didn't fit the model of a SaaS company, and there weren't many DAS examples out there at the time. I think that's starting to change where VCs are waking up to the economics of DAS and how they're different and why they're actually more attractive. But we were fighting that battle at the time. Hmm. Okay, so after the Series C venture debt round, what happened next? Yeah, so we continued to grow grow the business, and uh, we ended up finding a, a really interesting opportunity to merge the company with a, with a large company in the space that we didn't directly compete with, but had complementary data sets. And uh, they had kind of stalled on their growth, but were generating a, a lot of cash flow. And that cash flow it was exactly what we needed to continue to fuel our growth. And the combination of the two companies, sure, it could create product and go-to-market synergies, but immediately day one would create financial synergies because all of a sudden the revenue was that much higher, the cash position was that much stronger, and there was cash flow to fuel the continued growth. And so with the help of Vista Equity Partners, the largest private equity in the in the software space, uh, we worked together to merge uh, InfoScout with what was at the time called MarketTrack, and we rebranded the, the joint company as Numerator. And this was in? 2017. Okay. Mm-hmm. And how did that impact kind of day-to-day operations? Were you guys able to kind of stay independent or did you really, but, you, you had a rebrand, so now it's a whole kind of new company? It, was, it wasn't easy, just very simply. We had this startup vibe and culture. We were doubling, tripling every year. Uh, how many people did you have at that boy, point? Boy, at that point, we had about 130 team members. Mm-hmm. And Market Track? They had about 500. Okay. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you're coming into this kind of we're coming more in. They corporate. Think, they think they're kind of bigger and larger because they have more people. But in fact, you know, as a business, the InfoScout business was clearly going to be the uh, the growth engine and the dominant revenue provider for the company. And what was your role in Numerator? So I was I was CEO of InfoScout mm-hmm. continuing. Uh, I was invited to be CEO of the the entire uh, entity and chose instead to take a, a board position and and help with a transition to to another CEO uh, over the next year. Why did you make that decision? Did you Boy. see the writing on the wall, or you knew you wanted to exit and do other things eventually? You know, I think it's actually the same story. Why am I in Hungary now? And, and the simple answer is I'm a love refugee, as they as they say here. Yep. My wife is hungry. We've been together for 21 years, almost all of it in the U.S. Uh, we have uh, three awesome teen kids who uh, I just really haven't been able to spend enough time with building startups over the last uh, 15, 20 years. And so this was an opportunity to take a step back. Uh, it just presented the perfect opportunity. The, the company had gotten to a certain size and scale where actually, whether it was me running it or somebody else, maybe it wasn't going to make as much of a difference. I'm a little bit more of a of an early stage startup guy. I think my strengths play to between you know zero to a hundred employees, not between a hundred and a thousand. Or now there's three thousand employees. I mean, it's just a completely different scale. It requires different skill sets. Uh, I think it worked well for me on on the board and being very involved in product and go to market and other aspects of the company uh, up until the summer. But uh, um, you know, I, I actually don't think I was the right person to be CEO of such a large scale company as it kept growing. Hmm. Interesting. So how was it to, I mean, basically you hired your replacement and onboarded that person, (laughs) right? To some extent, to some extent. Yeah. So look, Vista Equity Partners is our experts in this space. And so they really brought uh, the skills to the table in terms of recruiting and hiring and onboarding, you know, and I became a partner to that CEO to help them continue to grow the company. 
Cool. And so you were still involved though until this summer. So That's that exactly was right. so what happened in the the last four years? <laughs> <laughs> well, quite frankly, the company just continued to grow and grow and grow. I mean, as I said, we're up over three thousand employees now, and uh, the, the company's just been a, a complete rocket ship. It's, it's been a fantastic ride, I think, for everybody involved. And you know, what happened this summer is that uh, a, a very large strategic acquirer, uh, actually multiple of them, came and decided it was it was time to to take the company off the market as its own independent entity uh, before it became too big. And uh, as a result, uh, we decided to, to go ahead and, and take the exit. Wow. Okay. So you went through this big merger and then you were acquired now. And there wasn't any sort of... So you were aboard, you had mm -hmm. a board seat basically right. this, last, this whole right. time. And now, yeah, there was... Are some people, is everybody staying or was there any? A, a huge chunk of the people are saying. So what uh, What actually this large acquirer who's an incumbent who's been around for many, many decades decided let's not take this company over completely and try and have it operate the way that we operate. It's too innovative. It's growing too fast. Let's let it continue under the numerator brand with the numerator leadership team who are excellent in place and let them keep growing this, this business for years to come. So it's actually almost a, a wholly owned subsidiary that operates 99% independently of the, the large acquirer. Was there an opportunity for you to stay involved? And <laughs> how hard was it to walk away, <laughs> I guess? Um, let's, let, let's say that question is still up in the air. I so see. It's, not, it's not fully resolved okay. of whether I'll be you know, kind of continuing in some, some capacity or not. Uh, but, uh, but I love the company. I love the people. And, and we'll see. At the same time, I'm pretty excited about uh, what's next for my own kind of career and, and endeavors. Yeah, great. OK, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, but the CEO who came in mm -hmm. after the merge, mm -hmm. he's been there the whole time? He's been there since, oh boy, I think 2018, 19 now. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and he's just done a fantastic job. Yeah, cool. Yeah. And the board stays intact or no? Nope. Okay, nope. New you're... board under the new owners. Okay. Exactly. I yep. see. Yep. So that's what had me deciding, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> time to move on. Yeah. Well, congratulations. I mean, this is a really, it's an amazing story. Um, and I think, you know, just having gone through all these different types of funding rounds, you know, just gives you that different kind of perspective and, you know, being able to evaluate all these options. I think, um, yeah, it's it's great to talk when it's, you know, not always this traditional kind of, you know, VC, VC wow. path. That's exactly um, right. Because I think, you know, we tend to kind of glorify that. But if it doesn't, you know, what, it's not the best option what makes the most financial exactly. sense, you exactly. know, and and yeah, really just I think what really stands out to me is just having that confidence to keep pouring cash into the business to get to that growth. I mean, That's tough. there's a That's lot tough. of examples in the past, you know, five years before I think we really understood or before there was this kind mm -hmm. of you know, startup terminology for these sort of things like cost of acquisition, lifetime yes, value. You know, right, I think when right. you were going through this, probably nobody talked about it in it those was, ways. It was early. It was early. I mean, we were all learning. And fortunately, there were, a, there were a few great thought leaders out in Silicon Valley who were publishing information and benchmarks and statistics and ways to think about the problem. And boy, I was soaking them up like a sponge as best as I could and figuring out what applied and what didn't that we could leverage. Yeah. I, there's just so many kind of cautionary tales i guess like what was that one home joy or the yeah the, sure a lot yeah where you know they basically did the same thing but it failed right. because they weren't watching their churn and sure. you know they poured a ton of money they got a ton of That's users exactly right. and then yep. ran the business into the churn ground and gross revenue retention are critical in that case yeah absolutely yeah you have to get those right 
Cool. Well, that's a really amazing story, and congratulations um, on all the success. So, Numerator, the final, uh, is it public, the final valuation? Uh, or people can Google and get a sense. It's okay. not official, but... Unicorn status, though. That's what we're we're allowed to say sure. on air here. Sure. <laughs> so, after the merger, that's kind of when you started spending more time here, I guess, and you moved here and that's you exactly right. full-time. And got excited about Hungary, uh, being a love refugee, <laughs> but also just can't stay out of the startup world. I can't. Right? I can't. When did you start your angel investing activity? Well, I actually started my angel investing uh, while I was still CEO of, of InfoScout and the Numerator. Uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to, to have an opportunity in one of the funding rounds to take some, some money off the table and start actually investing it. So I've been angel investing since 2014, but not as a primary activity, as a secondary. And so now that I find myself with uh, a lot more time and energy on my hands, I'm I'm starting to really ramp that up. So uh, I, I have a portfolio of about 25 angel investments. It's growing about two per month, I would say right now, and am a limited partner in a few VC funds as well. Tell us about your first angel investment. Did you know sure. you wanted to do this or did I somebody knew. come? Okay, I, so I, you... I, I knew I wanted to angel invest and, and I just found the right opportunity. It was actually a consumer goods company, uh, a very healthy flavored wa water as an alternative to the high calorie, high sugar, high uh, crazy ingredient list uh, beverages in the market. And a really passionate uh, founder mom who wanted a better drink for her kids. It was starting to get early traction, and I just really believed in the product. I loved the product myself, and, uh, and, and she's an amazing founder CEO. And it's called Hint Water, and uh, it's doing phenomenally well, actually. It's, uh, it's been quite a growth story. And how much did you invest in that company? Uh, that was uh, 50000 Mm -hmm. That was your first foray. That was it. That was it. Mm -hmm. And it's still alive, still doing well. It's doing well. It's doing very well. That's going to be a that's going to be a very nice outcome. And from there, it was just okay. This is this is going well. <laughs> this is roll up my this sleeves, dive no, in. No, I think it's it's look. Sometimes you just come across early stage startups, especially if you're a part of the ecosystem and networking like I was. Uh, and putting it out there that you're open to invest. Open. So. Well, here's the funny thing: in in Silicon Valley, you don't actually need to do that. People will approach you if you're if you're a successful founder CEO. People are going to approach you. They that, just assume that they that's just assume the next they part of assume. the evolution that's for exactly you right. in your that's career. That's exactly it. Did you have any? I mean, have any of the companies that you've invested in gone under? I mean, do you have any uh, fail so stories? <laughs> I, I have no complete shutdown failures at this point. Wow. I have one that that just really couldn't find product market fit, uh, and they took uh, they took an aqua hire, and you know it didn't fully return uh, return the money to the investors. But but quite frankly, that's totally fine. Uh, there there was nothing wrong with what they did. It's the way that they were early movers in in the voice analytics space. As you started having uh, Alexa and Cassandra and and uh, Google assistants coming on the market and and in-home devices for these voice assistants, you know, it was a question of how is this how is this ecosystem going to evolve? And I think they did everything right, uh, but the the ecosystem didn't evolve in a way that allowed third parties to really get in and monetize in a way that other platforms have emerged. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, because I think you know, there's a few people here who have been kind of dabbling or trying to get into angel investing, and I think you know your first few experiences really have a big impact on whether you want to keep doing it, <laughs> that's right? Probably true. And probably I know true. just from speaking to some of you know, you just learn you learn a ton first of all just from doing. I mean, obviously you had been through this before and sure. kind of being in Silicon Valley, and there's a bit you know more of a culture for yeah, this, absolutely, which we'll talk about in a sure. second. But just 
how important do you think it is to have a good experience the first time for prospective angels coming into this? I don't know. I, I mean, I think the the lead time to see whether or not you've made a good investment or not can be really long. And actually, the the better the investment, the longer it's going to take to, to actually get that, a return. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's the failures that are done in one, two, three years. It's the successes that take ten years before before you can really tell if this is going to work and out. And by that right. time, you've kept going, and That's so exactly you're kind right. of That's yeah, exactly you have a right. portfolio. That's so. exactly right. You know, and I think fortunately in my situation, I started doing it while I was still CEO, uh, getting a better understanding for for how it works. Uh, I had some great mentors who were founder angels as well that I could learn from. And, uh, you know, I think it's just put me in a, in a great position for where I am today. Have you had any exits? So you talked about this Aquahire where it was kind of a an exit, but maybe yeah. not a full return. But Yeah, uh, there, there's been one other, but quite frankly, you know, out of the portfolio, it's, uh, it's active and running. And how, how, I guess every company is probably different, but how active are you on you know, a monthly basis with your companies? Yeah. Oh, in terms of engaging with yeah. them? Yeah. So uh, there are there are about six, seven where I'm a formal advisor to the company in addition to being an investor. And what does that mean? That means I'm probably on a, a monthly call with the CEO uh, and covering any topics that, that they feel like they could use a sounding board for. And that often they're, they're sending me pitch decks or funding terms or other things to review and get my feedback on in between. Uh, for the ones where I'm not a formal advisor, I just get calls and emails out of the blue asking for quick takes and advice on things, and it happens quite regularly. You know, and then when something strategic or big comes up for the company, I jump in with the CEO and try and help them help them figure it out. And these six or seven where you're a formal advisor, is this kind of the similar structure to what? That's exactly what it is and to what I did with that, my first yeah. lead angel. And, and do you bring that as an option or do they approach you or this is kind of understood? It has to be a mutual fit. Yeah. You know, I never want to force that on, yeah. a, on a startup. It, you know, oh, you can have me as a as a lead angel and I'll set the terms, but. But I also you, want an I advisory also want advisor deal. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean that's not fair. If, if it's if it's great for the startup and that's what they really want, and it's a mutual fit in terms of working together, and I think I can add that kind of value, then I'm open to it. And you mentioned your uh, LP for a couple of VCs. That's right. As well, um, which can you share? Which? So Bain Capital Ventures, who I had a great experience wow, with. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, their Innovators Fund, and then Commerce Ventures, which is very focused on fintech, retail uh, space, and everything kind of in, in between. Uh, I love their vertical industry focus. A, you know, great lead partners there, and so um, you know, in both of these, not only. Am I an LP? But I'll often co-invest with them as well. Uh, and then um, you know, moving to Europe, I wanted to get involved in, in some some European funds. And so my first one on that front is is Flashpoint. They're a SaaS-focused firm with a Hungarian uh, founder uh, of the of the fund. And uh, you know, not only do they do earlier stage, let's call it Series A type investments in in SaaS companies, but they've also moved uh, upstream to a little bit mid to later stage. They're also doing venture debt now. They're doing secondary, and so because I've had great experiences with all of those, uh, I'm an LP in each of those funds. Wow, awesome, cool. And in, for your angel activities, is there kind of a specialty focus yeah. or you or you know, what what would you say is your kind of thesis as an yeah, angel? Yeah, well, uh, a couple of things. Let's let's talk about Hungary in particular because uh, I really wanted to get to understand the Hungarian ecosystem before I started coming in and just making a bunch of investments. Uh, I, I think that would have been a mistake. And what I've learned over the last couple of years, meeting with founders, meeting with the existing angels, meeting with VCs and others, is there seems to be a real gap at the first check level for founders here. 
You know, if you think about founders in, in Silicon Valley, uh, we had already worked for tech companies that were like Googles and Facebooks and Intels and had, you know, uh, the, the types of opportunities to grow our careers and put some money away so that when we went to launch something, we had money in the bank. Or we worked for a startup that had success, we got an exit, we had some money that we could use to fund founding our own company. That doesn't exist in Hungary for founders here. They don't have that, and they probably don't have the kind of savings to put tens of thousand dollars into starting that business. And they may not be able to afford to go full-time day, day one because what will they do for a salary? And then on top of that, their friends and family probably don't have tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to, to give them towards their, their startup right out of the gate. And then compound that further with where are the angels here? There are some great angels here. I mean, they're, they're great. They tend to focus a little bit later stage, want to see a lot more traction, and they tend to do a few deals a year. Um, and so what that means is there's, there's kind of a void in the market in terms of who's writing those first checks for founders who are trying to get to a proof of concept, a prototype, a first customer, something where they can have a semblance of product or traction that can be used to raise the next capital. And for you, first check... What does that mean in terms of size? Yeah, I mean, I mean it, it can be as little as ten thousand. It's probably more commonly closer to fifty thousand. Um, you know, for for first check, and and often startups need to raise more than that. So I have a network of of angels who are willing to to take those earlier stage risks, pre seed level, uh, and help get companies launched. And because like that's what you were your first your lead angel put mm -hmm. in. Was that's it right. 50? Or uh, they put in 150. They actually. put in 150, yeah. but that whole round was, was four, four, 450. Yeah. But there were people with you know smaller checks, we, right? We took checks of 5,000 if we thought they could add value. Yeah. Right. Yeah, which I think is also yeah. I and I'm I'm glad you brought this. Is what I want to spend the rest of our time sure. talking about sure. with kind of you know comparing and contrasting kind of the angel ecosystem in sure. Silicon Valley versus here. But I think there's this perception that. You know, even angels in Silicon Valley will put in tons of money, but I think that's just totally not true, right? You know, you can start with you know as that's little right. as five thousand, and right. it can be not traditional angels. You know, the three F round, right? I mean, it's you know, find somebody who's in that space, yeah. or your sure. long lost cousin, or you know, some, anybody right. you can convince right. to believe in you. Right. I guess in the beginning, because that's I, you know, I'm, I'm curious your take on this too, but I think. There would be some, there is capacity. I think there are people that have at least 5,000 in savings here you sure. know, who could be activated, but there's, we don't know how to do that in That's some right. ways. It's, you know, maybe- Well, there's some real barriers here, actually. So let's talk about those. Yeah. So, yeah. so even, if, even if you're an angel, interested in being an angel investor, which you probably don't have much experience in here, but let's say you, you were interested and you had the money to do it. What are the vehicles by which you can make that angel investment? So here I am. I'm, I'm familiar with the different vehicles. I'm ready to go. And I learned that, that I can't do convertible notes as, as a way to invest in startups here. If I were making one, two, maybe three convertible note investments uh, in, in startups a year, that would be fine. I'm looking to do these every single month. That's illegal in Hungary. It's illegal because it qualifies as a banking activity. I would have to be a registered bank. No angel's going to register themselves as a bank or a financial institution in order to make uh, early stage startup investments. That doesn't make any sense. So all of a sudden, convertible notes, the primary mechanism by which the earliest stage startups get funded around the world, not just the US or Silicon Valley, is off the table in Hungary 
in 90% of the cases. So then you go to a backup, which is the safe note, which has emerged over the last few years. Y Combinator created right. it. Um, it. It's not officially debt. It's, it's a warrant on future equity. So it's a secure agreement for future equity. That's what, what a safe means. There's no interest rate. There's no maturity date. So therefore, it's not a loan. Even on the balance sheet for the company, they don't have to record it as a loan. It's recorded as equity. It's not clear whether or not that's legal in Hungary or not. You know, so I'm, I'm looking for a formal opinion from uh, in Hungary as to whether or not I can use safe notes as a vehicle. So here are the two, two primary vehicles are, are not available. I'm not saying they don't happen or exist, but it's just not a generally available and accepted term. And I've talked to some founders here who are like, I, I don't know about this safe thing. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I want to do that. In the U.S., uh, a founder would be, let's go. Let's yeah. move. Yeah. Yeah. So how how are you? Have you done any investments in Hungary so uh, far? I, I finally closed my, my first one in Hungary. It's funny. I founded more Hungarian startups outside of Hungary than, than I have in Hungary. Uh, so you're helping point. them set up you well, know, or they have, or, or, the, yeah, or they so, have, yeah. Okay. So you know, Delaware C Corp. We've got one in Silicon Valley, led by a Hungarian, a, a founder in Sweden, uh, where she lives in Sweden, but she's she's Hungarian, and most of her team is is Hungarian. So, but look, I'm I'm looking to to change that. Vizu, uh, which is uh, an amazing data visualization technology and and potential platform, uh, I just participated in in their first funding round. And, and into the Hungarian entity. Into the Hungarian okay. entity. Okay, yeah, because that's, that's, right. yeah, that's, that's right. obviously the goal, right? So mm -hmm. we don't want to just send all of the startups, you know, to, to form entities outside because it's easier. We want to build that capacity here. Well, look, I think there's a question of, of can, do you need a Hungarian entity to be a Hungarian startup and to build the team here? I think it's a valid, valid question, really, because, because look at the entity types and structures available to, to Hungarian founders in Hungary. You have the Kafte and the Zeakte. Mm -hmm. So the Kafte is like an American limited liability company. If you're a startup in the US, you are not going to use an LLC, a limited liability company. Right. Why? Well, a few reasons. One is there's no, there's no proper structure for, for stock issuance and ownership, which is also a gap with Kafte's. It's a makeshift approach that doesn't work that foreign investors are not going to get comfortable with whatsoever. So if you're a Kafte, and you need capital for your next round of financing, one, you're probably going to need it from outside of Hungary, and not just Hungary, because there's just not enough capital here. Uh, and if you do, no foreign investor is going to want to invest in a Kafte structure because of how it's legally set up. It's not a jurisdiction question. Uh, it just doesn't work for, for equity management and other kinds of voting rights and, and board rights and other things. So then you have the ZRT, which should solve that because it allows issuance of stock and, and has all of these controls in place. Having set up a ZRT here, <laughs> uh, huge mistake. It's, 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 uh, it's an administrative nightmare. And it also follows this zero-sum principle of, of stock. Once you have a certain uh, number of stock shares issued, that's what you have. And so if you add a, a key executive and you want to give them shares of the company, you have to take away shares from other people in order to give those shares to the new person you brought in. It doesn't have to be an executive. It could be an employee. It's an administrative nightmare, but all of a sudden, everybody else is going, wait a sec, my number of shares just dropped. How many did this person get? That doesn't work. That doesn't make any sense. It's, it's, it's a zero sum. That, that's not how the system should be. The system should be, we're going to grow the pie for everybody. And so if we need to issue more shares, we issue more shares and give, give new shares to new investors, to new executives and employees. And so that's a problem I see in this ecosystem as well, which is if you're trying to hire talent as a startup, joining a startup is risky for people. Right. So why would they take that risk? 
the startup probably doesn't have enough cash to offer them a great pay, so you need to make up for it with equity. But the structure to do that in Hungary doesn't work. Or it's very complicated. The optics are not great. It's, it's not great. It's not great. And once again, it's not something that a foreign investor wants, wants to put money in. And so, so I actually think the right approach for any serious founder in Hungary right now, as of today, if you're going to build something that's, that's going to scale, uh, that's going to raise international capital and go, go international in terms of its market, which any serious startup has to because Hungary's not a big enough market, right. you're better off day one using like Stripe Atlas for $500 to set up a Delaware C Corp in the US and using a KFT in Hungary as a fully owned subsidiary to, to manage your, your employee matters and affairs, right? For payroll and other, other types of things. You know, that can still be a Hungarian startup. You don't need to move. You don't have to go to the U.S. You don't have to, to, to do any of that. But it's a much better structure if you're a serious startup looking looking to, to scale a company. And when you say you don't think there's enough capital here, do mm -hmm. you mean kind of do you mean at the later stage or do yeah. you mean kind so, of? Yeah. So let's talk Series A. Yeah. I mean, and, and Series A these days is is five, ten, fifteen million dollar right. raises. There's not a lot of players yeah. doing that. Look, there's a, I really like the VCs that I've met here. But they're probably going to write one, two, maybe three million dollar slash euro checks, right? They can be great participants. They can be awesome help and support for for the founders here. They might even lead around, but you're still going to need millions from outside of Hungary. Why do you think there are not so many later stage vehicles here? Oh, in terms of the the, the funds? Yeah. Oh, well, I think there's two reasons. One, you just don't have the, the history the of capital accumula <laughs> accumulation. And two, there's not enough yeah. successful startups coming out of Hungary. I think the problem in the Hungarian startup ecosystem actually starts at the very beginning of, of uh, enough good companies being founded. Um, you know, there are challenges every step along the way thereafter that, that need worked on. And I look forward to being, you know, a, a member of the community here that actually addresses those bit by bit. Uh, but, and I know it can be done, by the way. That's the other thing is I was recently in the Baltics. I was in Estonia and Lithuania. And I was meeting with the, the founders and VCs and other people who have built up that ecosystem over the last 15 years. They're a great role model for Hungary to follow. Um, Hungary doesn't need to follow Silicon Valley, uh, you know, or, or London or Berlin or Israel or something as an example. All we have to do is look, look to, to Estonia and Lithuania. They are smaller countries with smaller markets who have come out of some of the same history and, and economic systems who made very specific deliberate choices in terms of design of their startup ecosystem to get it going, ramped up. They had a few successes. Those few successes resulted in a whole bunch of, of people who had great experience building startups, making good money coming out of, out of the exits, who then go found more companies and go become angels and invest in the next generation. And those ecosystems in Lithuania and Estonia are rocking. What do they have, a million people for, for, for population? They don't have more talent, engineering and science and tech talent than Hungary. Um, you know, it, Hungary has every opportunity that, that these countries have. So what do you think are some of, what are the elements of the model that we should adopt here? Uh, so, so one, we talked about this type, type question. Yeah. I, I, I think there need to be some changes in, in terms of how equity gets managed and issued um, uh, that is much more favorable for, for building proper startups in, in Hungary. Uh, I think both of those countries took a model where the, the government VC programs co-invested with angels. They would not invest in a startup unless there were angels lined up to co-invest with them on the same deal terms in a way that sets up that startup to, to be able to 
to be successful in raising future capital as well. Uh, I think those are a couple of examples that need to change. You know, the other thing they did in Estonia is they had uh, meetings every three to six months with with members of the government in the key areas, the, the let's call it, you know, ministries of finance and tax, for example. They had lead VCs, they had lead founders, they had other key parties in the ecosystem, and they would meet and they would discuss the issues that were holding back the ecosystem, and they would break them down bit by bit. Um, month after month, year over year. And now they've got thriving ecosystems. And you're starting to have some of those conversations here. Is that right? <laughs> I am. I am. Absolutely. You know, I, I think I'm just trying to take these ob- observations of here's what I'm seeing. Here's the challenge with it. Here's here's why this is an issue. Here's what it means for a founder. Here's what it means for an investor. Here's why the deal won't get done. Here's, here's why they won't be able to get to the next step or be as successful or as likelihood to reach the next phase. Uh, and and here are alternatives, you know. And I don't like bringing alternatives from Silicon Valley as like this is how you do it. It, it seems so foreign and far away. But but I think these examples from from Lithuania and Estonia are are outstanding role models for for Hungary to follow. Hmm. And what would you say? I know you're here to shake things up, right? So this is your, <laughs> and you're starting to do. That's this. That's what founders and, do, right? Yeah. You're not an entrepreneur unless you're going to try and disrupt an industry, right? A bit. Say some controversial That's things. That's right. Um, I guess what are the, in your perspective? I know you said we got to start with the early stage, and yes. I totally agree. Yeah. Like fix the early stage, and then you know That's things right. will follow. Mm-hmm. What have you seen, though, so far in terms of, you know, just because you've met with a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, probably Mm -hmm. seen lots of startup ideas. How would you compare kind of the quality of this of the early stage Mm -hmm. deal flow right now in Hungary? Uh, Just to be candid. It, it's light and and it's not strong. Uh, there are some great founders here with some great early stage businesses. They exist, uh, and I think there could be a whole lot more of them. There are a lot that um, you know they they don't have the right initial founding team. You know, for example, they have maybe some tech or scientific talent, but they don't have anyone who can play the role of of CEO. Uh, and and build it. That that that's a common issue. Uh, they 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 have a solution in search of a problem, uh, and they're not sure how to really think about what is the specific problem they should solve for whom and how as a total solution. I would call it an obsession with product market fit mm. that does not exist uh, here as as much as it needs to. This singular focus 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 on finding product market fit at the earliest stage. Uh, it is it is not coming naturally to the to the startups that I'm meeting with here. How do we cultivate that, in your opinion? Ooh. Well, um, you know, I, I think a few things. One is let's let's talk about the the tech talent not having a CEO or or maybe a business person not being able to find a technical co-founder. You know, a few things that we can do to help solve that. One is uh, starting at the university level. Uh, we need to have uh, entrepreneurship courses and competitions competitions that have funding attached to the winners for them to be able to go launch their startups. The most formative experience I had at MIT was not in any of the coursework that I did. It was an extracurricular activity competing in the MIT 100K competition, working to found a company, getting connected with with real engineering talent to help me really explore and potentially build a company. That set me up for success when I actually launched real, real business later. And, and actually, a friend of mine who ended up winning the competition got him launched into, into his entrepreneurial journey. We need that in Hungary. We, we need those kinds of opportunities. I think, I think it starts with that. The other one is it's not just for uni- university folks. Um, hackathons. Hackathons done in such a way where you bring together people with business ideas or tech ideas 
where they can pitch them and get paired with people who complement their skill sets. So if they're an engineer and they've got a new technology, uh, but they need somebody with a business mind, the business mind can find out about it and be paired with them to start working on it. Or vice versa, often you have people, business ideas, but they have no idea how to pull it off technologically. They need an engineer to start, start hacking on it. Pair them together, get them working together for 24 hours, 48 hours, build something. You see this actually uh, coming out of the Baltics now. It's been really successful and a number of, of startups have come out of it. Uh, Belarus even now has joined onto that Baltic program and, and several startups have come out of there, moved to the Baltics and and started growing. It's a model that works. Uh, and it, it's a model that works in countries that have similar attributes to, to Hungary. Yeah, you think that that's interesting because I um, there's mixed, you know, it's maybe controversial. How do you do this kind of founder matchmaking? Because yeah. I think in some cases, yeah, there's been some success stories, but I think, you know, it's also pretty challenging when you're just meeting somebody or you just get to know somebody, but you're, you know, bullish on this. So you think it's a good uh, approach? I think there's just too many examples where, where it happens and, and it works. Um, you know, so, so it's not going to happen at all if you don't find the match. Right. The, and so the, facilitating opportunities, at least for these people exactly to right. come together. That's right. That's right. Okay. So we got to get more competitions going uh, and hackathons. Mm -hmm. um, what else? What else do you see here? You know, <laughs> we, we need first check funding. First check funding. First well, check funding. we have you here to fill this gap. <laughs> I hope so. Everybody, I hope so. You're I shouldn't get be the only one, you know, and, and I welcome more to, to come and, and help out and participate. This, this, is, this is not something that any one person is going to, to fill the void for, but yeah. hopefully can make a dent. What about, what about this, though? I mean, I, I feel like just kind of uncovering or discovering and, and empowering people to be possible angel investors or sure. I guess we need to kind of fix the fundamentals. So get get fundamentals. Get there to be, you know, vehicles where you can do this. Can they use a convertible note? That's kind of the can basic. Can they use a safe note? Yeah. But then those two questions being completely unanswered at this point are are crushing the ecosystem right now in terms of the ability for early stage startups to get proper early stage first check funding. But then in terms of, I guess, educating or, I mean, you're here also interested. I mean, are, do you have plans to have any sort of, I don't know, angel boot camps or something like this where you're giving back that knowledge or are well, you open I, to being a mentor for prospective angels absolutely, as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. Anybody who wants to, to participate in this ecosystem and help help it flourish and grow, I'm here. I'm a partner. Uh, I'm here for the long run. Uh, I'm not moving back to the U.S. Um, you know, this is now my home. I want to make my home a better place to be. Um, um, I benefited so much from being a part of the ecosystem in Silicon Valley. I know I would have failed without it, you know, with, without other founders and angels to give me advice and guide me and help me along the way, not just financially, but just avoid making mistakes or, or focusing better on what really mattered. The only reason I had the success I did is because of that. Uh, and I and I know it. Like uh, I was I was at a breaking point uh, in that journey early on, and so um, knowing that that if I had been Hungarian and tried to build the company from Hungary, that I would have failed. And the difference was that I was in Silicon Valley. How do I help change that? Like how, how do I help bring what I got out of being a part of that ecosystem to Hungary uh, so that others can 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 benefit from that as well? Yeah, absolutely. So who who writes first checks in Silicon Valley now? Oh boy! You know it's funny. Back in the day, when, when I was raising money, it was Ron Conway. Ron Conway. That know, was the guy. Hundreds, thousands of investments. Like if you wanted that stamp of uh, uh, of approval, you needed Ron Conway. And I couldn't get Ron Conway. I, uh, you know, got got a meeting, got a meeting with him, got the pitch. 
he didn't invest, right? That hurts. That's mm -hmm. hard. Nowadays, probably Chris Saka. You know, he's he's often on Shark Tank in the U.S. and and others. You know, who's behind Uber and a, and a number of other companies. But but yeah, I mean, they're super angels. Um, and obviously, I'm not going to do anything quite quite at their scale, nor nor should I. But but uh, look. We, we need somebody to fill that void here in Hungary. Well, maybe Jared Schrieber. That's going to be, that's who you go to for first I checks so. in Hungary. Really, really. <laughs> I, if, you're, if you're a founder and you're serious about scaling a real startup internationally, I, I hope I'm the first call. You're going to get a bunch of pitch decks after this podcast goes Great. on. Great. <laughs> All right. Um, I think we are about running out of time here. Um, is there anything else? I, I think there's been a lot of gems here in this conversation. Lots of um, advice, lessons learned. We have a lot of founders that listen to this. What's your what's your last bit of advice or what message do you want to leave them with today? Focus, focus, focus. And what I mean by that is focus on finding product market fit, narrowing it down, narrowing it down to the customers and the problems within them that matter the most, where you can have the greatest differentiation, you can add the most value, and you can excel and then repeat and scale. It may not be the full solution that you have in mind, it may not be the full market opportunity you have in mind, but you won't even get to those if you don't focus singularly on a specific role at a specific type of account, solving a specific problem as excellently as you possibly can so that it's a complete no-brainer. Anybody buying it is getting a 10x ROI, bringing you in. They're a hero inside their company. They're telling others about it. Like, that's how you win. Uh, you don't win by trying to boil the ocean day one. Okay. <laughs> There you have it, folks. Jared, this was such a pleasure. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much. We're really excited to it. have you in our ecosystem and can't wait to see what happens next. So glad to be a part of it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when we release new episodes. Tune in next time as we continue to deep dive and uncover more hidden gems in the Untold Stories podcast. Check out our show notes for more resources about the topics we discuss and anything we mentioned during the podcast. Let us know what was your key takeaway from today's episode. And if you found this content useful, please feel free to share it with anyone else you think would benefit from it. <laughs>